0: Well, good morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us this morning. Uh, we're going to find ourselves, and uh, we'll just go. Uh, I won't read it right now, but uh, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're looking at verses 15 to 29 this morning. And uh, as you open or load your Bible, i got a couple of things for you. The first one is that if you are new, uh, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out or simply have the opportunity to pray for you. And so there are these uh, Connect cards in the chairs. Fill one out, drop it in the back Connect desk, and one of our staff team members will get with you very shortly. In addition to that, we love God's Word. Uh, We love to preach from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. And so we have Bibles available for you. That is our gift to you. Thirdly, as you continue to flip, and Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. Thirdly, uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. Um, that's a big deal. It is a very big deal. That was a very like low, like, yeah. Um, we have some gifts for you. I want to say this on the front end. So we have some gifts, moms, for you. Uh, they're going to be available to you at the end of our service. Uh, and I want to say that on the front end because the text isn't exactly a very motherly day text. And so, uh, before you before you become upset, I just want you to know we have gifts for you. Um, and so, let me um, let me read the text. Why not? Let me read the text so you get what I mean. And then uh, and then I'll pray. And then we'll dig. We'll dig into our time, beginning in verse 15. Here's what God says through the author. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among, among all these I have not found. See, This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The word of God for the people of God. Let me pray. Almighty God, we are in need of wisdom. We desire wisdom, we seek wisdom, we need to cultivate wisdom. In your word, through James, you tell us to ask for wisdom, but to ask in faith. Therefore, may we humble ourselves as we ask you for what we do not have, for what we need, and that is wisdom. If words cannot describe our need, then Holy Spirit, may you make it known before us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember when I was younger, when the carnival would come into town, and uh, I hated the carnival. I hate carnivals. <laughs> it was never my thing. It isn't my thing. I don't like clowns, and I'd rather read a book alone. <laughs> However, I remember that on one occasion, uh, I went to the carnival with my brothers. You know which ones I'm talking about? Like the ones off the side of Ware Road, off of Frontage? Weird ones. Anyway... <laughs> I remember this one time I went with one of my brothers and we walked into this room where there were these funny warped mirrors. When you would look in the mirror, all of a sudden you were super tall, right? Or all of a sudden you were like really skinny and your eyes were like bugging out. Or maybe one mirror would show you like what you would look like without hair, look weird. Or maybe there was another mirror where you would look at it and you look like buff, jacked and tan, kind of gave you the perception of what life would look like if you worked out. Those mirrors gave you the perception or the perspective and humor of what life could be. And if you haven't noticed, to kill your buzz, if you haven't noticed, Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, forces us to see life as it really is. In Ecclesiastes, there are no funny or warped mirrors to look at life through. As we have said, Solomon examines the reality of life under the sun, the fruitful, but also the frustrating the terrific, and also the terrible. We live in a broken world, and there isn't anything funny about pain, cancer. There isn't anything funny about disease, miscarriages, infertility, orphans, monthly bills, pain when you're waking up, pain when you're going to sleep, infidelity, wars, flat tires, strained relationships, death of loved ones, and more. This Is our reality, and Solomon forces us to look at it. As we've been looking at this series, I want to remind you of a few things. The first is that Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible, it is an honest and hard word, but praise be to God that it is not the last word. And though Solomon presses us to look at the reality of life under the sun, the entire book of Ecclesiastes points us to the person and work of Jesus, who entered the vanity and vexation and frustration of our world and lived a sinless life, dying a death in our place and for our sin, placing his trust in the Father, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, rose again three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And freely offers us the grace of salvation that we cannot earn, not simply so that we would be forgiven of sin, but so that the way we live life under the sun is by living life through the sun, Jesus Christ, and long for life above the sun. In this text, like all the other ones that we've examined in this series, shows us how much we are in need of a savior as a result of this broken world. This text looks at a helpless race in need of Christ's redeeming grace. So if it's cool with you, let's begin our time. This text is gonna be broken down into four sections. The first three sections are gonna build on top of one another. We're gonna look at a broken world, that's number one. Number two, a broken world with righteous sinners. Number three, a broken world with righteous sinners and fools. And then finally, number four, a helpless race redeemed by grace. Let me preface with one thing before we begin. Verses 15 through 29 in Ecclesiastes 17 are among some of the hardest passages or verses in the Bible to interpret. Uh, Many individuals that I know who have walked through Ecclesiastes as a sermon coincidentally skip this part. When we first started this series in Ecclesiastes, I told you we're going to do this together. We're going to seek wisdom and see what God has for us. And so let's see how well we do. Beginning with the first point, a broken world. In the classic 1987 film, The Princess Bride, Wesley says, life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. That's part of the paradox that Solomon is trying to wrap his head around in this first verse. We're going to park here for a while. Verse 15, In my vain life, I have seen everything. You can kind of hear an older man on the porch, maybe smoking a cigar, saying, I've seen it all in my time. That's basically what Solomon is saying. Solomon writes that not only is his life temporary or has it been on loan, But in this life, he's had to confront that the world is broken, suffering exists, hardship comes, pain is all around us, and it is difficult to reconcile. And this is a reality that we don't like to examine if we're honest. We've discussed this at length throughout the series, but as a result of our reality, as a result of our broken world, we want to escape and claim ignorance. But we can't do that. Because it's not wise, it's not sustainable. In fact, it's worse, it's destructive. So then as we consider Solomon's opening words, it begs the question, so then why is there suffering? It's difficult to look at the presence and work of God when we're focused on our present realities and difficulties. Not that we shouldn't grieve at what's happening around us, but if we consider our present hardship, we can see a couple of things. If we take a step back briefly, we can look at a couple of things. And this may not answer all of the questions, but I hope it does give us a little bit of perspective. Life in a broken world should make you grieve. That hardship and suffering exist, and we ought to grieve. Our souls are not comforted by what's happening. No matter how much good we do or how much justice is sought, injustice still exists. Suffering still happens. Life in a broken world has been, yes, corrupted by sin, and it doesn't mean that we just leave it there. It does mean that, however, for the ones who have been reconciled to the Lord, we ought to groan and grieve and lament and cry out. Just because the way things are, just because things are the way they are, doesn't mean that's how they were intended to be. Living life under the sun in a broken world also reveals the nature of our hearts. This is one of the paradoxes that Solomon wrestles with. He sees hardship happening all around him, but at the same time he recognizes that his own heart is no different. That he too is capable of wicked things. That he too has dark impulses, just like you and I do. Living life in a broken world under the sun exposes our sin. It's not just that other things are the problem systematically or systemically. It doesn't just mean that other things need to be fixed. We too need to be restored. We too need to be redeemed. We too are in need of grace. Living life in a broken world sometimes means that God uses what is crooked to correct us, to correct our sin. That's something that we don't generally like to think about. But sometimes God uses what is crooked to be at work in us. What you and I need to begin to at least understand is a knowledge of God without a knowledge of our sin makes us prideful makes us arrogant. A knowledge of our sin without a knowledge of God leads us to despair. A knowledge of both leads us to dependence. That is what Solomon grieves in his opening words. As we continue in verse 15, he introduces another complexity, and he observes that the righteous die young while the wicked prosper, And this is a startling reality. It is one that has a great unfairness to it. He says there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs in life in his evil doing. The righteous in Scripture are those who live according to the will of God. The best example here is the Lord Jesus. Solomon at least gives us Or Solomon gives us at least two takeaways. Because when you consider this complexity, when you consider this paradox, he's essentially saying, how is this fair? And what do we learn apart from this frustration? We can take away two things. The first one is the depth of our maturity does not ensure a long life. The depth of our maturity does not ensure a long life. For instance, look at the life of Jesus as he was killed at the age of 33. Children who love the Lord Jesus and find themselves in the hospitals who die earlier at a young age due to illness and disease. If that bothers you, you're in the company of a person like Solomon. Our righteousness is not only a gift from God, but our righteousness does not mean a long life. Our righteousness does not mean that we are owed anything. The hard part about that is that some of you think it does. The righteousness that Christ has given you After a couple of years of walking in the faith, you think, I've done these things, therefore I am owed. You think if we're good, then we get good. If we're bad, then we get bad. That's called karma. We don't believe in karma because sometimes suffering happens even though we're faithful. If life is going well for you today, do not assume that you've earned it. Instead, praise God for His grace in your life. And if life isn't going so well for you today, it is not because God is punishing you. So turn to Him in dependence See, that's a really big danger of interpreting this verse, especially when we're frustrated. That as a result of our righteousness, we think we deserve something, especially when the wicked prosper. I know that's especially difficult for rule followers. But once more, the depth of our maturity does not ensure a long life. The second thing that Solomon tells us is that sometimes the wicked do prosper. That is a reality. The psalmist wrestles with this and has a hard time reconciling it. In Psalm 37, he goes on to say, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Though the wicked prosper, and sometimes they do, they will not always prosper. The righteous take a really long view of life. And they are not simply consumed by the pleasures of life in the now. This first verse is one where if you find yourself bothered as I mentioned a while ago, then you're in good company as so was Solomon. A broken world and what presents itself as an unfair reality ought to grieve us. It ought to lead us to long for paradise. However, we cannot escape or claim ignorance when faced with these things. Therefore, we must turn to God with groaning, with pleas, with frustrations, with these paradoxes, with humility. We must turn to him with burden. And it is, in fact, because of His sovereignty that we can turn to Him, and we can trust Him, especially when we don't have all of the answers. We can turn to Him and worship Him, especially when we're in trials. We can turn to Him and cry out as our souls are not comforted as we confront the realities of a broken world. The reality of life in a broken world causes our spirit to groan for the redemption of life in a restored world. And so after reading verse 15, you may feel like throwing in the towel. (laughs) But in order to better help us in this next section, A Broken World with Righteous Sinners, Solomon gives us confusing advice. Here's what he says. Beginning in verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? All right, how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this when in verse 20 he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But don't be overly righteous. Well, what does overly righteous mean? The key word is in the word overly. Obviously, there can be a righteous person. One can be righteous. But an overly righteous person is one who is self-righteous. A self-righteous person is someone who lives, I suppose, according to the Word of God, But their their philosophy is more like sola bootstrappa, as one commentator puts it. That is, they pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, live life according to the rules, and then expect a reward from God. The self-righteous person is the one who can be legalistic in their nature, where they add to the Word of God, impose things on their life and the life of others that aren't biblical, pressing arguments that are nowhere to be found in Scripture. The example here would be that of a Pharisee in the days of Jesus, adding to the law of God. They knew the Word of God, but internally their hearts were filled with greed and pride and self-righteousness. Jesus goes on to tell them that you clean the outside of the cup. In other words, you take care of everything that is external. This is Matthew 23, and he says, "...but inwardly you are full of dead man's bones." Solomon says, why would you want to live this way? So you're like, all right, well, I don't want to live that way. And he's like, right, don't be overly wicked. He's not advocating wickedness in moderation, just to be clear, okay? He's not ab- There's a difference in the sense of us knowing that we sin, right? He says, don't be overly wicked, neither be a fool. What does this mean? Well, we know that we are all sinners. We know that we fall short every day. But we also must recognize that there are individuals out there who really do plan schemes. In, in verse 25, very briefly, he says, I turn my heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. The word scheme means that, uh, or schemers are individuals who intentionally plot, plan, and execute evil, okay? So he's not necessarily talking about them in this verse. Here, rather, he lends himself toward flat-out lawlessness. So if the first one is, hey, don't be self-righteous, then here he says, don't be unrighteous either. For many in the church, a broken reality can lead them toward unrighteousness apart from a beautiful redeemer. For instance, one of the things that is become a lot more popular lately and it's not new but it's something that's become a lot more popular is the movement of what many call deconstruction. Deconstruction is where individuals break down, dissect or dissect and sometimes reject beliefs they previously held as they grew up in their faith. While well, that's a sermon for another time, I want to highlight two things about deconstruction. The first is that the goal of deconstruction should be a greater faithfulness to Jesus. If the individual is reevaluating and discussing and working through what the Bible actually teaches, then that is good. They're being pressed. They are going to the source. They're putting themselves through the ringer of what our faith teaches. That's a good thing. The second is that deconstruction has become popular for two of many reasons. The first one is church hurt. To be fair, church hurt is real. It is hard. It is hurtful and it happens. However, When an individual or a church goes through church hurt or goes through difficult seasons that way, one of the things that we do not see very often, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, one of the things that we do not see is lament. Rather, I see rejection. And I say that even from my own heart. I can be very sarcastic. I was telling some of the guys about this a couple weeks ago. I'm very sarcastic, I'm very pessimistic, and I can be very cynical. The truth about cynicism or the reality about cynicism is that it is based on experiences where you've experienced betrayal, where you've experienced church hurt, and you could say, well, how can I not feel this way if I actually experienced it? So I'm not here to say that church hurt isn't real and that it doesn't exist, but I am here to say that one thing I do not see the church do well is lament. I do not see the church cry out. And so it is real. So I'm not knocking that. But before we reject, we must lament. The second thing that's made it popular is a license to sin. And this comes in the way of masking oneself with Christianese and phrases like, I'm wrestling with, I'm struggling to see God, I'm wrestling with whether or not he's going to do X, Y, and Z. And to be fair, some individuals do wrestle with those questions and do wrestle with that. That's not what I'm knocking. What I am knocking, maybe this is the cynic in me, what I am knocking is that, the, that those phrases are often a mask so that really you would dive into sin. A couple of months ago, I met with an individual who was telling me this. I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with that. I don't know if God is doing this, that, and the other. What do you think? And my response was, are you still sleeping with your girlfriend? And he said, oh, that's not really what I want to talk about. Ah, there it is. There's the heart of it. You want to mask yourself with righteous language, philosophical quests, when in reality, you want to pursue your sin. That's something different. The goal here is confession and repentance. We could say more about deconstruction, but that's just a very brief primer. Do not turn. Do not turn towards something simply to appear righteous and philosophical. In reality, in reality, examine yourself. Examine to see if you're the individual just in search of unrighteousness. And so as we come to verses 16 and 17, Solomon says, to both the self-righteous and the unrighteous, why destroy yourself and why die young? Is there a better answer And he says, yes, there's a better answer, and it is the fear of God. Why? Because the fear of God produces wisdom. Verse 18, it is good that you should take a hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Solomon is saying, whether you're the self-righteous person or the unrighteous person right now, grab a hold of God. Grab a hold of the truth of God for you. Turn toward God. Trust in Him alone. Either person, when they come and turn toward God, trust in Him and follow Him, come out winning. They come out winning when they put their, uh, their faith and their trust in the Lord. And as a result, they produce wisdom. This is verses 19 through 22. Let me just give you a quick preface here. He is still addressing uh self-righteous individuals in this verses so in verse 19 he says uh, or verse 19 solomon shows us the strength of wisdom he says wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city he's saying that it's only a fool who would fail to desire wisdom because when we seek wisdom when we grasp wisdom we have security that's what we looked at last week that wisdom is like having a savings uh, account that we can pour in or we can go into it in order to discern things and make wise decisions. Here he says, wisdom has strength and wisdom is spiritual depth precision, uh, perception, seeing the consequences of my decisions before I actually make those decisions. Wisdom has strength. Wisdom is worth it. And so in verse uh, 21, in verse 21, for the self-righteous, before they might think of themselves a little too much, Solomon humbles them, all right? Here's what he says. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You may desire godliness, but that doesn't mean that you don't sin either. And that's part of the problem. The self-righteous person can't see their sin. The self-righteous person is the one in the chair saying, so-and-so needs to hear this. No, it's you. You're the one that needs to hear this. And so he uses this little story right he says do not take heart all the things that people say lest your servant is cursing you servant whoever's near you your spouse your friends whoever in here Solomon is just being real he just he just presents himself straight up when he opens up by saying do not take to heart all the things that people say in other words he's saying hey let it go now some of you have received that advice right whether we're in community group or in conversation with others and hey this is what's going on oh you just need to let it go right? That just means release it into the air, I suppose, into the hot, humid air. Release it. Solomon doesn't uh, let you get off the hook that much. And some of you are like, well, I can't let it go. Well, Solomon doesn't let you off the hook either. Essentially, in, in verse 21 and verse 22, Solomon is saying, let it go because I know that you know that your friends talk smack behind your back because I know that you know you do the same thing. In short, Solomon is saying, No te hagas. (laughs) That's what he's saying. No te hagas. Your tongue is a reliable source for your heart. Jesus says that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles a person. Out Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, where do we go from here? Solomon is telling us about all these paradoxes, wise the unwise. He says that he's tested them, by, or he's tested this pursuit by wisdom. This is verse twenty-three and twenty-four. He's trying to achieve godlike wisdom, and in his pursuit, he realizes that godlike wisdom is incomprehensible. He says, "All of this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me." That which is far, that, that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? He's trying to think like God, but realizes God's thoughts are too high and too deep for us to comprehend. Because even when we're wise, we sometimes sin. So then what? What's the hope? Right? This is where Ecclesiastes just puts reality on the table and you have to deal with it. So, what's the hope? I want you to briefly look over verses 15 to 29. You can do this now or afterward. I want you to look over just how often he uses the word wicked or sinner. The wicked man in verse 15. Do not be overly wicked in verse 17 there isn't a righteous man in verse 20 and 25. He turns himself to to look at the schemes of things, the wickedness of folly. He's constantly using these words. Ecclesiastes affirms the Bible's view of sin. And if we leave it there, it leaves us in despair. But Ecclesiastes is not the last word. You and I can celebrate that the exception to what Solomon is saying is Jesus Christ who came into our world and at the right time died for sinners like you and me. The apostle Paul says it this way, for our sake, not his sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him that is in Jesus in him we might become the righteousness of God on the cross Jesus bore our guilt bore our shame bore our sin and in exchange gives us the fancy word is imputes he imputes he gifts he gives his righteousness on to you that's the beauty of the cross. And the reason it's so beautiful is because the cross exposes us to ourselves. The cross reveals that we are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The cross tells us that we have dark impulses, that we are prone to evil actions. And it is in Jesus that he bears that all in our place and gifts his righteousness unto us. The text gives us practical wisdom, but it also teaches us about the limitations of our wisdom. To admit that we don't have all of the answers is wisdom on our part. John Calvin calls it learned ignorance. A hip-hop artist says it this way, I get it, but I don't get it. The fear of God, that is knowing who God is, knowing what God has done, and knowing that you are not Him, is who we turn to. Certainly in our groaning and in our lament, but also in our arrogance and in our lawlessness. We can turn to Him with trembling trust. We can turn to Him while trying to release the control we think we have. And so now we come to the third section, a broken world filled with righteous sinners and fools. This is verse 25 through 29. The first few verses were hard. These are more difficult. And as I was prepping for this sermon, I just kept thinking it had to land on Mother's Day. So here we go, right? We're just going to look at the text. Here we go. Verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. In short, Solomon's like, I'm still trying to figure it out. That's what he says. I'm still trying to figure it out. And so here he unpacks or he continues to unpack his motives as he's trying to figure out the paradox of life. He's confronted by them. He doesn't like them. These are a reality. And he's still trying to wrap his mind around it. So we spent the first portion of our time looking at a broken world. We looked at the second portion, which is a broken world with righteous sinners, those who know God and still sin, those who are wise and still sin. Now he turns his attention to fools. And you could tell that this has been an intentional journey for Solomon. He uses phrases like search and seeking wisdom. In fact, he uses language like that in this portion of the text seven times. In other words, this isn't a joke to him. He is genuinely trying to figure out some of life's paradoxes. He is genuinely trying to figure out why certain things happen to others and other things don't happen to many. And so here he turns his attention to, towards fools, those who don't know God. And this is where we see the, the, the phrase schemes or schemers or wickedness. And he lands on two conclusions, right? And he introduces these two conclusions by saying, these conclusions are more bitter than death. I'm just going to read the text, not my fault, it's on Mother's Day. Here we go. <laughs> I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. In Proverbs written by Solomon, most a lot of them, there are two voices. There is Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Lady Wisdom cries out with her voice and all those who come to Lady Wisdom are blessed by Lady Wisdom. And then there is Lady Folly. Lady Folly in Proverbs, you can find uh, this this poetic language in Proverbs 7. Lady Folly is loud and wayward. Her, Her words are smooth and enticing. She's seductive. And he says that her words are worse than the realm of the dead. Solomon is surely being poetic in his language. And he addresses women in this passage because his downfall was sexual sin. It's not that women are the problem to Solomon. It's that sexual sin or anything that leads one toward folly is the problem. So if you're like, man, Solomon could have written that differently. I don't know, maybe he hadn't had his coffee yet. I don't know. I'm just telling you what he's saying. Lady folly is any temptation that leads you astray, that entices you, and you willingly give in. That's lady folly. And in verse 26, Solomon says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He's saying lady folly lays traps for everyone. Now, here's the reality. If you do not know Jesus, you are constantly ensnared, and you are enslaved to these desires. They're not traps to you, they're treats. If you know Jesus, you need to know that Laity Folly sets traps out for you. Sexual sin, pornography, addiction, arrogance don't act like it's all these other things coveting greed self-righteousness lady folly lays out these traps for you and solomon says escaper flee from those temptations whatever it takes flee those temptations and again, some of you will hear that and be like, man, so-and-so needs to hear it. No, 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 you too. You are part of the problem. You also must flee and resist temptation, whatever that is. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to say, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Gouge it out. It's better to, He says it's better to go into heaven missing a body part than to be thrown, uh, your entire body to be thrown in hell. And then he adds to it. If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. Why? Because it's better to walk into heaven missing a hand than going to hell with your entire body. And we talked a little bit about this at the men's gathering. It's a hyperbole. In other words, he's he's exaggerating to make a point. He's saying, do whatever it takes to flee and resist temptation, to run away. I'm going to look dumb. Yes, and you will please God. But you will please God, not just because it's right, but because God is more pleasing than anything or anyone that this broken world offers. That is why you flee. The second conclusion is that he says fools are schemers. In other words, we are helpless apart from God. This is verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, my soul has sought out repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In a way, Solomon is calling all of us out. He's calling all of us out. See, he uses language of creation to do this. So he's saying God created man, that is God created man upright. He created man. And when we go to Genesis, we see that when God created man, he called him very good. And then in Genesis 3, man did something very bad. Man wanted to be like God and sought out schemes. This is who you and I are apart from God. And you might say, well, man, what if I, what am I, a Christian? Does that mean you have a temptation to want to scheme? The difference is repentance and the spirit dwelling in you. And so he continues, one man among a thousand I found, but not a single woman. All right, here we go. Are all women in the world bad? No, absolutely not. So with that being said, we must consider Solomon's story. Now I've told you this before. (laughs) Just like a realtor is all about location, location, location. How do we interpret scripture? Context, 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 right? So you can't just look. This is his personal journal, okay? He was an emo in the forest writing this. So maybe he was having a bad day, but nevertheless, Let me me hook you up with a little bit of context to the best of my ability because this verse in particular, there are at least three ways of going about it. and This might be another one. Nevertheless, are all women bad? No, absolutely not. But Solomon's story was different. 1 Kings tells us that he married a thousand women, all of whom worshiped other gods. Together, these women, 1 Kings tells us, turned away his heart. Ecclesiastes is not just him looking at life under the sun. In part, Ecclesiastes is almost like his letter of repentance. Because in Ecclesiastes 9, he goes on to say, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Maybe he's reflecting on his first wife from Song of Songs. And he's just realizing how bad he screwed it up. When we look at the pages of scripture, there are a tremendous amount of godly women. We can look to Ruth, we can look at Esther, we can look at Mary, we can look at the woman from Proverbs 31. This verse, what Solomon is writing, this verse says more about Solomon's life than anything. And what do we know about Solomon's life? solomon chased idolatrous women when he was told not to it destroyed him it ruined the kingdom one writer says it this way the preacher king who wrote ecclesiastes did not know any women like that referring to ruth esther or the woman from proverbs 31 The preacher king who wrote Ecclesiastes did not know any women like that, which is what a man gets for trying to love a thousand godless women. Solomon pursued idolatry to the fullest degree. If it is harsh, it is because that was his downfall. Do not think you are immune to other things. The point Solomon is making is, wisdom is rare and sin is very real. Fools are enticed by temptation. Fools plot schemes. We must pursue wisdom because sin is very real. And so we come to the final section. A helpless race redeemed by God's grace. This is verse 29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon's conclusion is God made man upright, but we plotted schemes. We are all sinners, and sin is an equal opportunity employer. And this verse teaches us about creation while pointing us to redemption. Solomon says God created man. And then man sinned against God, trying to be God, enticed by the great schemer, Satan, and sin entered into our world. Quickly, sin and corruption spread throughout our race. But the story doesn't end there, and it does not end with Ecclesiastes, because Adam from the garden was not the last Adam. There was another Adam, a second Adam who would succeed where the first Adam failed. There is a second Adam who removes our inherited guilt and imputes his righteousness onto us. There is a second Adam named Jesus Christ who entered into our broken world to live the life that the first Adam from the garden could not live, just like you and I cannot do, dies the death for our sin and makes us alive in him through the Holy Spirit, all of which the first Adam could not do. Jesus enters into our world to live and die for the self-righteous, for the unrighteous, for the wicked, the fool. Jesus never sinned. Rather, he embodied wisdom, the same wisdom that Solomon was so desperately trying to achieve. Jesus entered our world to crush the great schemer, Satan, and it is through Jesus that we have been forgiven, our hearts renewed, and our lives redeemed. And it is only through Jesus Christ that redeeming grace has been provided for our helpless race praise be to god listen to the way paul says it this is romans 5 for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man it's talking about adam Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. What is righteousness? It is a gift. Are you disheartened? Does your soul thirst? Is your soul not comforted? Not only are you in the company of people like Solomon, but the accessibility to the throne of grace and comfort is for you. Whether it's in confession or lament, draw near to the throne of grace this morning. Lay your heart and cast your burdens before the Lord. And if you do not know Jesus, you are enslaved. You need one who is greater to set you free from the chains of your slavery. It is only by faith alone, through grace alone, and in Christ alone, that you can gaze upon the freedom of your heart as you turn to the Lord Jesus. You can turn to Him with trembling trust. You can turn toward the Lord Jesus as you repent of your sin and surrender to the Lordship of His redeeming grace made available to you through Him. Praise be to God for God's redeeming grace toward our helpless race. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is by your redeeming grace that we have hope. It is your redeeming grace that restores us to you, to one another, and our hearts. But Lord, if if we're honest, our souls still hurt, our hearts still ache, our doubt shakes our faith, and our pain is very real. God, we first confess our sin before you, where we've rejected you, where we've rejected our brothers and sisters and ignored the Spirit's leading in our life. However, we also ask that you would bring about comfort, not all of the answers, but comfort in the middle of complexity. Strengthen us by the grace that is the Lord Jesus, for it is only because of Jesus that we can face today. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.